Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. In this episode, we speak with Ahmed Kamasi, who is the Vice President of Data Science at Equinor, which is a large oil and gas company. Ahmed started his career in Siemens Research. He's also worked in startups. He's worked at Google, PayPal, SaaS, Wipro, JP Morgan. He's run his own machine learning company and now works at Equinor. Some of the things we talk about in this episode, the role of simulations and optimization in decision-making and automation. We talk about why it's important for data science teams to own the engagement of value creation with the customer. We speak about how to prioritize the work done by by your data science team and what to aim for. We talk about how to engage business stakeholders and get subject matter experts working in your team. We talk about how his lessons learned at Google and PayPal. Also problems that BI tools should be looking to solve, the importance of DevOps in the data science value chain. It's a really interesting conversation. We cover a little ground and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe and today I'm speaking with Ahmed. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks so much for making the time for the interview. I've been looking forward to speaking with you, so thanks a lot for making the time. Thank you for uh, inviting me. At the beginning of, of the interview, I wanted to ask you about, about your background and how you got started into the field. Uh, what mm-hmm. was it that drew you in? Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that for you? In uh, the late 90s, I did a, a work experience with a Siemens Research Institute and I worked on modeling Pietro so these are little ceramics that contract or, or, or expand with electricity and if you uh, compress them or stretch them they will produce electricity so they are very useful in, uh, in a lot of um, mechanical and, and electronic processes it was a challenging task and I spent a lot of time writing equations and trying things and so on and then I moved into modeling computer modeling of, of the set of equations I came up with etc and I remember that when I got the first results uh, my supervisor told me you have to wonder about your accuracy um, because the model was so uh, so accurate. Mm. So I started all over again and I got the same results. And ever since I fell in love with modeling uh, in general, with mathematical modeling in general. And basically I decided that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something I enjoy. I enjoy maths. I enjoy r- real world problems transformed into 
mathematical problems and I enjoy computing. So everything comes together. That's fantastic. What is the, the benefit of doing the, the simulation side on the real world problem? D- it depends. So at that time, we needed to understand, uh, we needed to be able to test different concepts. So in, a, in an industrial environment, like the one I was working on in, in Siemens, we needed to simulate the real environment. We needed to test different concepts and so on. And that carried on to my PhD, where the problem statement was it's too expensive to test welding on titanium or plutonium. So we need to simulate it. But if we weld, then we have very complex, highly nonlinear equations and so on. And it takes too long to get the results. So we needed to approximate them. So from that point of view, the interest is in trying concepts, designs and so on fast uh, before you finalize your, your design and probably test in, in, on real things. Nowadays, it's sep- it's it's much more evolved. Mm-hmm. Now we, we, number one is we are data-driven. So in, in our field and machine learning, we are data-driven rather than equation-driven, which is different. And the use sometimes maybe in simulation, but most of the time is actually optimizing decisions. It's, it's the future. It's what do I do next? Or in automation, how do I remove the need for manual interventions and so on? Both fields are very linked and so on, right? Um, at least in terms of concepts, we're still trying to get uh, computers to represent the world, the real world. The application may be different or the expected outcome is different, but we still do the same thing. And is there still a space for, for simulation in, in the type of problem? that you see? Uh, it's actually making a comeback. So we have, when you think about some of the problems I'm working on right now in terms of automation, or at least recommending best policies or best strategies in, in complex systems, in order for us to train the models, mm-hmm. uh, we need to simulate because we cannot train them on real life. Everybody knows about autonomous vehicles or self-driving cars. There's a lot of simulation that goes into the training element. But we in the energy industry, uh, we have problems about production, for instance. Mm-hmm. So we want to maximize all production. We cannot train a model on a real life platform where we have hundreds of whales producing. So what we need is we need to create simulation environments where we train a reinforcement, deep reinforcement learning model. But to do that, we need the simulation. So we combine the simulation, um, the physical simulation with the data-driven approach to create that learning. And we may go even further in terms of combining the outcome of the simulation and how the model trains, not only in the simulation element so that it trains, um, but also in how it trains. So there is, it's making yes. a comeback in, in, in terms of there's a, a now conjuncture where the data-driven element and the physical simulation are feeding one another. That's so interesting. That's mm. so interesting. And what what are the the barriers to entry to to start doing uh, simulations of, of that kind? It's it's the the accuracy of the of the models we have. Mm-hmm. So in the in our industry, we deal with simulating what we call subsurface structures. So we have basically, if you think about how to produce oil and gas, two, three, four, five kilometers under the ground. Most in our case, mostly below the sea. There is a spawn. Let's imagine it as a sponge. It's crude. It's a crude uh, analogy, but it's a good analogy. Yes. So we, you have a sponge. The sponge is filled in fluids, generally water oil and gas in that order from more depth to shallower. And then we stick straw in it and things should flow. But we never see the sponge. We measure things about it. So we we sense it using seismic data, using using some logging and gamma rays and so on to 
infer its characteristics. Yes. And then we build models on that. So the simulation models or the physical simulation models are built on these estimates mm. of what is this, what are the characteristics of the sponge and then the fluids in the sponge and so on. That is never 100% accurate. Mm. They are numerical simulations. So they use uh, CFT, which means that, you know, the size of the block and so on matters in accuracy, etc. But most importantly, these are dynamic and non-stationary stochastic environments. So things change, yes. right? So it's, it's, Say it's a it's a, a challenging task in certain situations. Yes. Uh, but there's a whole field called reservoir engineering who do that and they excel at it and they have a lot of a lot of experience in doing and uh, doing that they can bring to the table. And combining that experience with what we are trying to do in terms of being data driven, I think that's uh, that's where there is potentially a 10x outcome for us. That is fantastic. And because whenever going back to to the example that that you mentioned before about the self-driving cars and when people think uh, hear of simulation and machine learning in being combined for self-driving cars they think of a, a machine learning model driving a car in a in a video game right mm. and getting the feedback and sort of learning from there with a physics engine and things like that but in your case with oil and gas it's so much more difficult it is so much more difficult yes. yeah because the the amount of data that you have from from what's underground is obviously limited and sparse it's limited limited and sparse and we need to to have the expertise to help yes um, and this expertise is about getting the simulation as right as possible um, sometimes it's difficult yes definitely um, my 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 dad is is a mining engineer and right uh, he worked in copper for a long time and and now in gold and he he did his career in, in uh, geotechnical engineering mm -hmm. and sort of seeing how the the earth changes as they dig through it and, and what they can yeah. expect. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really really fascinating field and, and one ripe for disruption with data driven. Uh, we hope so. Amazing. <laughs> so uh, sorry, tell us a little bit more about your your background uh, from from Siemens uh, onwards. So I I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh -huh. I did mechanical engineering and undergrad. Uh, I come from a francophone educational system, which is a little bit different to the Anglo-Saxon uh, okay. educational system, but it's mechanical engineering. Then I did a PhD in mechanical engineering, where I worked, as I described, on simulating welding or simplifying numerical simulation of welding. And then after that, I actually worked in the oil industry for a bit. At that time, I found it too constraining, too not innovative. Uh, yes. I, I worked on operational environment. So I left, joined the startup to work on field development planning. So we try to uh, create an optimization tool so that if you are an oil company trying to invest billions in a, in, a, in a field, you can optimize your decisions, how to exploit it. After that, I joined Google, uh, where I learned a lot, um, not only technically, but also in terms of how to create an innovative and positively competitive environment. And that was my, that's where I, I, I uh, if you like, I uh, set my uh, tent on uh, continuing within the data, uh, the data world. Before joining Equinor, so Equinor is the company I, I lead data science in now. It used to be called Statoil. It's the Norwegian oil and gas company. I ran my, my own machine learning company and we delivered some really good products in very traditional uh, environments from 
public sector to banking and so on. Amazing. That's really great. But I am, I don't want to be anything else apart from a data scientist with a, a little bit more of a uh, leadership responsibility. Yes, yes, that's great. And, and tell me about your time in the startup. How, how long was that period and, and what did you, did you learn from doing that? Oh, uh, it was about three years. And the first startup I worked on before Google and mm. with my own company, maybe two years, uh, slightly more. What you learn working in a startup is that the hardest thing in business is to get money from your customer's bank account to your bank account. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to do that it doesn't only depend on your excellence or your competitiveness. It also depends on a lot of time investment and so on in managing relationships with your clients and contractual arrangements and so on. And that comes at a cost, but also gives a lot of discipline in how you make decisions, mm. uh, what to do next, where to invest your money, when to invest your time. And I, I really like that. The second thing is when you work in a small company, you realize everybody is is important. And that you also realize that you the best people you can work with are the can-do people. Because without a can-do attitude, you fail. People tell you it's not in my job description, then you're done. Yes. Yeah. And I carry that even in a large organization like Equino, where we are building a cap- new capability. Um, having can-do attitude is extremely important. Having a startup attitude where people can change hats very quickly is, a, is extremely important. And going back to the customer issue, even when you are a data science team in, in an established business, you still need to operate as a startup because you still need to convince and you still need to push your products back into the business and, and create value out. If you are running your own company, you create value, you know you created value when the customer pays you, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And a large company, that's a little bit less clear. So you need to make sure that you own that engagement of, of value creation. So the, the startup world is, is, is fascinating. I, I enjoy it. Um, I enjoy the, the challenge. And it's, it, it's about selling ideas, selling capabilities, creating technology. I agree. I agree. I had a startup company for five years in Australia before I started working in the bank. And it was the most difficult thing that I've ever done. And it made me grow professionally so much. And, and yes, we, when we started, we had no idea about business and made lots of big mistakes. <laughs> and so I wanted to, to ask you, there, there were so many interesting points that, that you raised there. And one of them was that the, the data science team should operate as a startup and own the process of, of creating value. Could you explain, uh, tell us a bit more about that? This is a very controversial subject, uh, especially when you operate in a traditional business. So my starting point is that we, if you are leading a data science machine learning team and a traditional business, by traditional business, I mean not digitally native business. It doesn't matter when it was established, but it's how it was established, right? It means that you are on the fringe, right? So you either operate in a environment where everything is tentative and people are, "Mm, it may work, it may not work, or you operate on the in, a, in an environment where you are, there's there's an organization behind you, uh, but you still need to push your products down there and get them used. Uh, ultimately, our colleagues will use our product. And success is highly correlated with that engagement by our colleagues and using our product. Therefore, I believe that engagement, i.e. how much of what we do is actually used on a day-to-day basis to make decisions, or even if it's something that you create to to, to to enable automation, whether it is actually automated or not, is should we shouldn't delegate that. 
it is ultimately a business decision. It's ultimately somebody who's responsible for process who needs to introduce your products into that process. But we need to be engaged in the sense of we need to know whether we have developed things in a way that are humanly friendly or human friendly so that our colleagues use them. But most importantly, whether the outcome and the user experience are of value. Uh, not everything we do is, is of value. And, and everything we do in data science is, is creating something new, right? If, yes. if we are not creating something new, then we just use an API and, and things are done. But yes. if we are working on, on a problem for which there is no solved solution, then we are creating something new. And when you create something new, you always need to test. You always need to know whether you are converging towards the, the ultimate aim, i.e. the real world problem you're trying to solve, or you are not. Mm-hmm. And in our situation is that needs and means that our colleagues use our, our product. Therefore, we should be responsible and accountable for that engagement alongside of our uh, business colleagues. That's great. And how, how do you pick what to what to work on? How do you prioritize the work and, and start it? There are push and pull mm-hmm. uh, situations. So in, in Equinor, for instance, we have, we are part of a digitalization program that the company takes very, very seriously. We have very high representation so in, in the company. We have regular uh, meetings with our executive committee to report on progress and so on. And our executive committee committed to outcomes to the markets from what we do. Therefore, we have broad coverage in the company, which means we have a lot of demand out mm. there for problems to be solved or, or at least attempt. So there's the, that demand element. And then there's the push element. So the push element is, is about us understanding our situations, our key business challenges, and trying to think outside of the box. How do we meet them? How we prioritize is by seeing what is it that either in the pull or in the push that needs to become a core capability for us as a company. So we bring this thing that is in the French called machine learning or AI or data science and we turn it into core capability for us in the future. And what I tell my team is that we should work towards the the, the aim is that in three years time we are completely redundant um, because we have created capability that is core. We have created so that it works at scale and we have created so that we change our colleagues' job title or job content so that they can apply it themselves. And if we do that, then we have really achieved a, a, a delta or an impact on the organization. So I personally prioritize in this view, right? I, I use this, if you like, philosophy to organize the team, to decide which areas we, we, uh, we focus on, to decide to choose the areas of capability building internally and externally, and to narrow the focus of what we work on. That would be so great. And how does the, the team react to that or, or take that, that philosophy? It took a while to get the team on board and it took a while to get the business on board mm-hmm. and to my, my peers and, and, and the wider business to get them on board because we are not a necessarily in the business of creating technology or investing in, in such type of capabilities. We are an industrial business. We are, we are an energy business. We have huge expertise in very specific areas across the value chain of an oil and gas uh, business or an energy business. That's what we do. Mm-hmm. And, and and we deliver huge massive projects on time and to budget and so on safely etc right now we are saying there are opportunities out there to make the businesses even more efficient or to make them even more production out of our existing assets so that means that we need to have a view of we need to invest in new capabilities and, and, and new ways of doing things than what we had before and that's not easy so that, that's uh, that's the wider ecosystem if you like and we are still trying to change uh, but we have good wind and I think there are leaders in our business who are really visionary, for whom it takes 10 minutes to convince them that we can use reinforcement learning in your in your problem there and we can do this. And 
they ask, okay, what is this? You explain it. And they are very, very smart. They are engineers, mostly by background. Mm-hmm. They have solved really tough problems and so on. And they have that can-do attitude and we go for it. So that's, that's the wider ecosystem. I think for the team internally, initially when I joined the organization, we team was a bit soul-searching. Right? What are we here for? What should we deliver? And so on, right? Yes. And to get the team to think scale, to think product, to think focus and so on, it's a little change or some for some is a little change, for some is a huge change. But I hope now that everybody's motivated towards that, to achieve in to achieve in that vision of being completely redundant three years time. <laughs> Amazing. That's such that is such a great goal. I love it. Yes. And as a data science team in usually in a in a legacy business, as they start to get success, there's way more demand for work than what the team can supply mm. because the, there's a whole business that needs to be changed. Mm. Uh, so to get through the work, uh, we, we spoke about the prioritization and the start of the work, but I wanted to ask you about the, the end of, of project uh, or, or big milestones. How, how do you uh, decide when to when something is it's good enough uh, that will solve the problem and, and give the business uh, what it needs and, and move to the next big, big challenge? That's, that's a great question. So when I say we become redundant, how do we do that? We do that by solving large classes of problems at scale. By at scale, I mean we deliver products so that nobody needs a data scientist to solve that problem. So if you think about it is at some stage, accountants didn't have Excel. Yeah? Yeah. So they used ledgers and it took them time. And then suddenly the job content changed because they have spreadsheets and they can do things fast. That's the, I want to introduce various types of Excels into Equino so that our colleagues themselves apply our output or our products in their day-to-day work. So their job content changed. So back to your question is, our focus should be on building these solutions in a very smart way, in a general way, and writing the code in a way that it's user-friendly. It's We create a, a user experience whereby an engineer can use, link their data. Let's say we, let's say we have, we have a, let's take an example of what we call uh, around asset mate. So let's say you have a compressor, you're a compressor expert. You need to make sure that that compressor runs on time, runs regularly, doesn't catastrophically fail and so on. And we develop a way to detect degradation, for instance, in that, in that compressor from its sensor data. The way we go on about doing that is by using a general way so that if you have a machine a piece of equipment that has sensor data you bring your sensor data and the pipeline will produce a model for you that you can tweak and so on to detect degradation right in a timely in a timely manner now back to your question is an alternative to that in a traditional business like ours to have a data science team is you ask a data scientist can you please build a model for this compressor yes. and then they finish that model for this compressor and then somebody else calls from Brazil and say can you can you do another model for my compressor please right that is highly ineffective that is very linear. I come from technology background. I believe in non-linearity. So we will have a set number of people who will create disproportionate value relative to their number. Um, and the way we do it is by creating products that we push to the business. We get engagement. That's why the engagement is important that yes. we're talking about. And we get our engineers, our geologists, our reservoir engineers to apply these new tools on their own. That's that's our philosophy. So the way we are organized now is to enable that, is to create these set of capabilities mm. that will deliver these products at scale. We start them small. We start them on specific compressor, for instance. Yes. We learn. We learn what's the right user experience. We learn... Do 
we need to predict an hour before degradation or three hours before or two weeks and so on? What's the right way we know what are the problems with the data that people struggle with and so on so that we have a pipeline that can deal generally with these problems, etc., etc. And then we scale slowly. And scale is not just using more data. Mm. Scale is one product that tackles as many instances of that class of problem as possible. Excellent. So back to your question is, we stick with that line Mm-hmm. until the product is ready. Um, and then we go to the next product. But the important thing is that we, we, we create that nonlinearities because once that product is live, then it can be applied infinitely without us. Exactly. And that's what I mean by we shouldn't become redundant in a few days time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, and how do you draw the line when the, the product is ready. That is entirely driven by our users. Yeah, yes. Entirely driven by our users. There's no science to it. Mm. There is learning. Uh, we always have these d- discussions of, for instance, back to the degradation problem of a compressor, which is, okay, what's the threshold on the degradation to raise an anomaly? I don't know, right? We seed, we have model, we have a chain of models to do this, but ultimately the user is going to tell us, right? It's yes. not necessarily entirely scientifically driven. Or maybe some user group would like us to tell them some user groups would like to choose. So how do we, how, when do we finish a product that's entirely user-driven and entirely depends on the value we create and the engagement. Mm-hmm. So yes. I, I do not put, uh, I sh- we should not put a deadline on it. Yeah, that's great. And that's so interesting that you're, you've brought the DNA of a startup into a big traditional business and you're creating data-driven products, data-driven software products to help mm-hmm. uh, address the problems of all big business. Uh, absolutely, which is, it's a big change in mentality and in, in culture. It's a big change in terms of the, the, the view of what I call the false dichotomy between business and technology. It's for, for, look, d- data science is a very peculiar state mm-hmm. in the sense that it's infrastructure, it's software development, it's IT, it's R&D, it's um, engineering, it's, it's where do you fit, right? So when you come into an organization that is established where they have clear um, management systems and R&Rs and walls between things and so on, it's, and you say, I don't recognize these things. I don't see them. Where's the wall? For me, there's no wall. Yes. Right? There's no, there is no difference between the trying to get the compressor to work perfectly all the time and the infrastructure I'm going to run some machine learning on, right? So you as an engineer who has a business task and, and, and a target of uptime and so on, right? That's, that's real business. That's the, the sharp end of it. Yes. And you, Mr. IT guy looking after infrastructure, looking after cloud platform or, or, or some, or some data source for us, there is no gap because we need you both. Mm. We need to bring that gap together. So to bring that startup mentality, thinking products, thinking, mm. thinking scale and so on, it means that you need to create the trust that people either side of that equation trust you that you will deliver to them. I.e., I am not playing around here. I'm not yes. just having fun uh, from a business perspective. Yes. And from an IT or, or, or infrastructure perspective, whatever, I am not just a cost for I'm just a headache, right? Asking you for data and asking you for this and that, right? We need, we need to be and we need to change the culture and bring these people together and, and behave behave in a way that breaks these walls, breaks these silos. Exactly. And that's how startups works and that's how digital native organizations work. How do you go about doing that? About I changing the culture? Sorry? I just do it. <laughs> doing is more important than anything. True. And again, that is something else that is very different from established organizations to, uh, mm. to a startup. You start by doing. I, I start by doing. Yes. Mm. And you I, find... I for that. And you 
you find that that starts to get trust from different parties and start to generate a change in the culture? I find that when I when I speak with my peers mm. who probably sometimes find me buffling or, or, or not very clear to them and so on, it makes the conversation easy because this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Not this is what I would like to do and, and so on, right? Or you should be doing and so on. I think that helps a lot. It creates conflict sometimes. So it mm-hmm. creates clashes and styles and clashes and, and focus and clashes and ownership and so on. But at least when you're doing, people can see, okay, now now I can see how, how things work and so on. So that's number one. Number two is, I. this is m- my experience from startup world is it's very, very hard. Imagine you're a startup owner, you have you have a prototype of product and you're trying to sell it uh, to, uh, to a client. It's very hard to sell the product, actually the pain point, your solution <laughs> to the pain point, the product that meets the solution, <laughs> whatever the client needs to need to, to do to get that product and, and use for them and the commercial model at the same time. That's five things. So what you try to do is, first of all is, I need to select the guy or the lady who just need two, three points that I need to set. Mm-hmm. Because they either recognize the pain point and are cool with the commercial model, or they liked my product and they recognize the solution and they like my product and they're cool with the commercial model and so on, right? So you always try to go to the to the to the path where you need to convince least. So within Equinor, we're lucky because we have my leaders are, are visionary and and they are they are on board. They give us a lot of leeway and support and so on. Uh, most of my peers are in the same wavelength, but most importantly is that there are leaders out there who are really visionary. So you don't need to sell it the whole thing. Mm-hmm. All what you need to sell is generally is I need one of your SMEs to work with me for three months, which is a big deal. Yes. But that's it. It's not that you need to trust me. Mm. You need to trust my idea. You need to recognize the pain point. You need to, to, to that's too much, right? Yes. Just ask for one thing that you need to do. And we are lucky in that context. That's really good. So then the the model that you have is to get people from the business seconded and come into into your team to solve the the problem? We work in joint teams, so they're not seconded yet, but we work we work in joint teams. So our philosophy is that the most of the products we work on will have a, a business product owner. So somebody who is and and the deep end. No matter how much empathy I can have with a production engineer on a platform, I will never be a production engineer on the platform dealing yes. with the complexity, with with the risks, with the with the targets and so on and so forth. Right. So we need we need people who have that. Uh, empathy and we want them to drive the way we approach our colleagues we want them to drive the messaging and so on and we worry about the technical element let's let's build the product and let them get us the user experience in the right way so that's that's my preferred model for now in other areas that mm-hmm. are more tentative especially in subsurface will probably go into succumbent and, and, and teams that are established to work together for a long time mm-hmm. on specific areas but that's more the geology reservoir elements where the problems tend to be um much more specialized and, and, and so on. And that's probably the best way to, uh, to deliver. Uh, but most of the other areas, uh, uh, we would like product owners from the business who, uh, of course, understand how we work and understand how to, they have an agile mentality and so on. But to get that engagement, we need that link. Yes, definitely. And how do you pick the people that will be product owners? What are some of the attributes that you look for? First of all is, for me, the most important thing is, is they understand the concept of iteration. Look, if you're an oil company and you are building a, a, a billion dollar platform, 
you don't iterate. <laughs> That's right. Right? Yeah. You don't have, you don't have the luxury of, ah, oh, it's okay. This concept didn't work. Let's try again. Right. <laughs> but if you're dealing with bits, it's costless to iterate. Mm. And the best way to get things done is by iterate. So you need the people who have that mentality, who are cool about that. Right? That's number one. Number two is to get the best out of my team and any team, mm. in actual fact, in, in, in similar organization or similar, uh, similar setups, you need to empower them. Right. I can advise, I can give opinions. And they are free to listen or not. How do they organize the day-to-day work? How do they organize the roadmap? How do they decide to when to kill things and so on? That must be completely delegated to them and they should be empowered to that. So if you have a, a, a product owner from the business or, or an SME working with you from a business, they need to have that appreciation. Yeah. Right? It's a very different either in banking or, or in oil and gas and energy or maybe retail and so on. It doesn't work like that yeah. because these are very process-heavy businesses they are very traditional business and things work by i have a process for you to apply right? that's right while our process is not to have a process right uh, our the only process we have is okay we work on short sprints we try things we kill them fast we move fast yes. um, and that's very different concept so they need to have that mentality the most important thing is this product owner needs to have that mentality that's great and was that was that culture of of that the process is no process and any trading quickly was that in the already established in the team when when you started or is that something in, that you in built? pockets in pockets uh-huh. i think uh, i think in in the organization as as a center of x we in the center of excellence we are pushing agile in the way we deliver digitalization so i mean agile think what the methodology is below it's up to the teams right but at least in agile thinking so what does that mean it's cross-functional teams empower teams focus on on the end customer iteration to that 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 is something new and, and we, we we are driving it for the data science team, some of the people in the data science team moved from inside the organization. Some of them spent 20 years in the organization. Oh, wow. I just want them to be more empowered. I want them to be take more initiatives. I want them to try more things, either in their today, day-to-day uh, work or even in the way we run the team collectively. I want ideas to be bubbling. I want to be overwhelmed with activity with the, with the and with ideas. I want to have a culture where people come on a, on a team meeting and say, you know what, guys? I tried something, I failed, and it was so cool. And here's what I learned, right? Etc. Right? That's that's really what what I want to get. It, that is in the process of being grown, if you like. Yes, that that is amazing because you're essentially being bringing in that that extreme empowerment idea is is what uh, and and I'll ask you about your views, but is is what I think of as what's been done in the big tech companies, where the the idea is to say you guys are closest to the product, to the data, therefore you understand the customer best be empowered and go forth um so uh, with with that I'll, I'll ask you about your your time at google and what type of work you did there and what you learned from that time i worked on the ads business mm-hmm. um so we worked a lot on financial modeling we worked a lot on revenue we worked a lot on on the link between what pages and and what we get as an outcome outcome and so on what what i learned in google is many things number one is the importance of having a great team and that is everyone what struck me the most in google was how diverse we were and how similar we were as a bunch of people background nationality ethnicity gender everything is diverse everything but at the core we were just the same kind of people we were hyperactive we uh we uh we were people i don't know how it is now maybe grown and changed but at that time everybody wanted to do the best yeah there was no settling for it's it's okay 
we had problems with data, we had problems with, with processes, we had problems with, with, with matching things, and we just ground up juniors, people who just joined, get a call, we get chat, we fancy, fancy trying to solve this problem, right? And, and that was amazing. We created so many things just bottom up. And that's something I would like to bring to, into my team as well. I, I, I would like them to just come back and say, this is what we've done, rather than can we do this? Or worse, we have a problem. Yeah. That's the attitude that keeps companies innovate, that keeps them to be the best, keeps them to always, it's, it's, it's a hyperactivity that I haven't seen elsewhere, mm-hmm. yes. uh, to be honest. And I, I would like my team to be a, 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 a microcosm of that in, uh, in Equino. It's a hyperactive team that meets challenges, fixed challenges. Uh, and we are there. Some of the teams we have are there and, and they come up with really clever solutions. They, they find the people that they need to work with, etc. They, 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 they meet challenges and so on and jump over the hump and, and move on, right? That's, that's the important element. Never settle for it's okay. Yes. And they, so they're autonomous. They have great attitude. They're, they're pushing forward and Look, if, they're if, empowered. If you are commanding people, yes. they will never do that. Correct. Like it's, it's, it's just not not possible. Yes. Right. If you are set in the direction and telling people we need to get to that point, now find a way, mm-hmm. then they will find the best way. I I like my team to manage me in the sense that they come back and say, this is what we are step for the team. This is, this is the program for our next offsite. You know what? We tried some tech stack on this cloud platform. Rubbish. Now we're going this way and, and we have tested and, and we've done it. So we just come to inform you. Yes. And I would love that to yes. be constant and, and, and recurrent. Yes. I mean, Amazing. And then, uh, sorry, and it's yes, not laziness on my part. No, of course not. It's just that for us to deliver these products I was talking about earlier that are general, that they can solve classes of problems in a general way and the right user experience, you need a lot of innovation. You need people to think outside the box rather than my little thing I'm doing now. You need people to cooperate. Mm-hmm. You need people to realize the limits and they say, I need that software engineer yes. or whatever um, and bring them into the, the, the fold and get them to contribute. You cannot do that by, can I please constantly, right? You shouldn't. It's not going to work. They need to do it themselves. Yes. And if I am commanding or the organization is commanding or their business customers are commanding, that will not happen. Mm-hmm. Never in a million years. No, not, a, not at all. Not at all. And why why do you think that that this model of management, which I love, by the way, it's just fantastic. Why do you think it's not more pervasive, like more in uh, used in more places? Um, I think most of business is about getting things to run on time mm-hmm. and to budget yes. and safely. Therefore, this model of doing things may not be the right way, or at least this an extreme mm-hmm. version of it may not be the right yes. way. Uh, you always want people to, for instance, you take the the automotive industry, that's what they realized with, with lean and just in time and, and so on and so forth, right? It's the guy who's fit in the bolt who has the best idea. So they empowered them to get the best idea. So it's 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 a version of this within a, a certain context. So it's not possible to have this extreme version or at least some version of this in all uh, uh, businesses or all industries. That's number one. Number two is when you think about um, where did organizations, where did most of industries or where do they get their competitive advantage. So where do they
they get the 4% margin that is above the market or the market average or above expectation or whatever. They get it by being fantastic at doing things operation. Most, mostly. Some have ex- limited access to resources. Some have uh, limited access to uh, capital or whatever. But mostly it's because they're fantastic operation. Right? Retail. What makes difference between one retail and another? Airlines. Right? What makes difference between airlines and another? Just to, we used to think it was customer experience and so on and empowerment of cabin crew to make you happy. And then suddenly, you know, the grumpier they are, the better. <laughs> uh, as long as the plane takes off on time, lands on time and runs at least fuel possible and so on, right? So that's where that's where the competitive advantage came from. And now we are in a, in a digital age where actually the competitive advantage comes from innovation, comes from breaking the next barrier. Why? Because our core resource is cost, right? It's the best out there that we use, right? The most important resource became the ideas, the collaboration, that 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 positive banging of the heads that gets the next next idea. It's what you asked about earlier. How do you focus? It's by spotting that opportunity and going for it. And that's why certain digital giants are giants, is because they can iterate and they try things and they can constantly churn products and so on uh, at almost no cost to them. That is a very different competitive advantage, right? And to do that, you need this management model we are talking about. Yes. To be fantastic at running a plane on time at the least cost with least fuel and so on, the the, the, the minimum empowerment is probably more important than anything else. So yes. the, you, you see the difference, you see mm. the contrast. And I think most of industries are moving towards the, the, the digital model, the moving towards the innovation because most fat was cut from their current processes and so on and now they need to be innovative elsewhere That's and right. their competitive advantage needs to come from somewhere else. and that is innovation on top of the digital asset. That is fantastic yes and, and I, I had never thought about it like that 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 there's so much in existing businesses that need have that operational excellence and that this is a new new area that is a different part of the business. By the way Felipe I mean doesn't mean that that a, a Google or Facebook or Amazon are not striving for operational excellence, but they get it through that innovation, right? Yes. They get it because they set themselves up so that things are automated. They can continuously deliver. They 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 can continuously deploy code. They can test many versions and so on and so forth, right? Infrastructure is automated, etc. Right. So they go for it, but not by adding ten thousand people mm. uh, just to keep lights running, but to add technology that keeps the light running at minimum cost. In the meanwhile, people are busy innovating. That's right. That is great. That's great. And then after you spend your your time in Google, then did you start your your second company after that? Or did you do something different? No, no. I I worked for PayPal. Uh Uh, I worked for SaaS. SaaS was probably the best work environment I've ever worked in. Wow. It's a fabulous company, fabulous people. I enjoyed it a lot. I learned a lot about products and, and, and uh, product management, and I learned a lot about uh, having a company running on a philosophy. And SaaS runs on a, on a philosophy, very strong philosophy. I have very fond memories. Then I went four years into consulting uh, yeah. with Wipro, then Wipro Digital, and then I worked for JP Morgan uh, and run my company. Amazing. And um, so tell me, um, tell me a bit more about SaaS. What what made it uh, such a great work environment? It's a big family. It's truly a big family. I remember when I joined the UKMD meets have has 
breakfast with all the new employees on two Mondays a month, whatever. And he said, because you are here and you went through the recruitment process and so on, it means that you are a thoroughly decent chap and ladies. And it's true. It's it's company that recruits a lot on character uh, as well as the capability, which means that there is a really brilliant collegiate uh, collegiate culture. And there is a lot of pride inside, a lot of pride for our products and, and, and the core SaaS language and the core technology. People love it. People think that really, truly, they change the world at some stage and, and, it's, and it's something worth living for, worth going to work for and so on. And it's very, very different. Um, and you know what? You see it with the sales guys. Uh-huh. And if you see it with sales guys, it means it works. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Wow. The culture is very different. Yeah. I did not know that. That is, mm. that is great. That's great. And, and I, I have, I have to ask, what, what do you think is uh, happening or going, going to happen now, uh, with the rise of the open source languages to compete? That is, that is a very important question. Um, I think, I think there are markets that will not displace and open source will find it harder to displace uh, regulated uh, environments and so on. But I think it needs a lot of distinctiveness mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to justify the licenses and so on. And I don't think this applies only to SaaS. This applies to almost every single BI product or visualization product, right? So yeah, if I can use Plotly for free or for very low license, why, why should I pay for it? And actually, it's pixel perfect and I can control any, any point on, on the screen and so on, right? So why, why, should I, why should I pay a license? So they need to have a really distinctive offering. And I think part of that is automation. So automating some of the key questions, key pain points from a data science perspective uh, or data perspective in general. Having solutions that really automate data mashing or, or data profiling or cleaning and so on. I mean, some of these problems are incomplete, so they don't have a solution. Mm. But at least seeding it and making and bootstrapping a solution will be will be important. I think having environments that allow truly allow for continuous deployment and automated management of yes. data science machine learning product will be another area that needs to be uh, focused on. So there are pain points that are worth investing in, but to get a fabulous product out there with the UX and so on, Python is... That's right. Or maybe so. Yes. If you're not constrained with regulation and so on. Great. And so now I'd like to change tact a little bit or change gear and go mm-hmm. to, I guess, more, more general questions or big picture questions. And first I wanted to ask you about about what makes outstanding data scientists in your mind? What do you see as the the attributes of a great data scientist? First attribute is you need to really want to be a data scientist. That's when 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 I when I meet people who want to transition data science, mm-hmm. what I tell them is you need to be prepared to get your head to hurt. You can do data science without getting your head hurt, but you will not be fantastic one. Yeah? Yes. Think about it. What do we need to know? We need we need to know the concept of machine learning. Get really grip with philosophy, right? That's, then you need to know algorithms. So when I say algorithms or, or different modeling techniques, I mean you need to know how they train, what's the cost function, how do you get convergence, is it is it a, do you have a closed form, is it is it okay if it's an optimization, what's it blah blah blah. Right? You need to learn a lot of coding. You need to learn a lot of computer science so that you get your code to run properly and you get your your models to run and and you need to get your convergence to happen because if you don't know how computers deal with deal with floating floats and so on, you, you probably can can run into problems, right? So then we need to learn a lot of technology, right? Because functionally, 
what we can deliver uh, in products doesn't only depend on the data or the algorithm or the programming language. It also depends on the technology below. And if you work in a team like mine where we want to create products, then you need to become conversant with the DevOps or data ops process, right? Yes. And maybe cloud technology and so on. And obviously we solve business problems. So you need to get to grips with geoscience if you're working, right? Or, yes. or maintenance engineering on a, on a platform if you're working on that. So there is a lot that you need to get your head around and you need to build experience. And so number one is you need to love it and you really want to do it. And you need to be curious because that's what we are. We need to be curious. We need, I need to learn and know about the next thing. And I need to, when I get into new business, I really get excited. I, I worked on, on, on Cantu, right? I never imagined that to make Cantu, it's actually non-trivial, right? I mean, think about it. How many carrots you need next Monday? It's a big deal, right? Yeah. And ca- it takes time to grow carrots where you buy them and so on. So you, it excites me, right? I go back to my wife say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know how, how soup works? And so, <laughs> um, so you need to get your head around many things. And to do that, you need to have that curiosity and you need to, be, to love what you're doing. So that's number one. Number two is you need to be innovative, like truly innovative. Either because assuming that your problem is not suitable for representation learning, you need to do some feature engineering, that's a creative element, or even to spot the opportunity, right? Not all the opportunities are there, say, in machine learning or optimization or, or forecasting or whatever, right? Mm. Some, some opportunities are, are, are hidden. So you need to, you need, you need to be innovative, think, oh, I can probably help with this by stitch thing. The other characteristic is you need to be humble because you will get it wrong. You will you need to tell people that I actually have the idea, but I don't know how to solve it. So I'm going to learn as I'm doing it. And, and and I repeat this quite often. I think it'll work, but I really have no idea how to get it to work. So we'll, 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 we'll progress. We'll, we'll learn as, as we go. And you need to listen to the people, as I said earlier, and the deep end, right? Because that user experience and so on, the learning from them, the framing of the problem is very... To do that, you need to be collaborative as well. Mm. So it is it is, for me, it is it is i love what i do as i told you earlier but it also means that i demand a lot from it right you need you need to be out there you need to be in there you need to be i.e you need to be innovative within your mind and you need to be collaborative with the team with your colleagues and with the wider business and you need to be innovative with them and so on and you need to be fast and 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 trying things. You need to be fast in detecting opportunities. And that's a lot to demand from one human being. But I honestly believe that every human being is capable of it, especially those who make it into data science or focus on it, right? And I want them to be challenged and I want them to, to want to do that. So that's why I I, 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 I kind of look for too much within one human being, uh, which frustrates my recruits. Of course, but it's, it's a fantastic way to build a great team, get fantastic people and then demand a lot and Absolutely. expect a lot. That's really great. And how about how about for data science leaders? What do you think are the attributes that make a really outstanding data science leader? I think number one is you need to do a lot of data science. You need to do a lot of work because you, you need to be in, you need to have the expertise. Mm-hmm. And expertise is, is not knowledge. It's one step beyond knowledge. Right? So you need to do a lot of it. You need to be to have been exposed to many situations, and you need to take your time. Most data scientists are not necessarily interested in the management track. 
Correct. Right? Uh, not most, many, but some are, and a few are too fast to to go there. And I think it's not simple because you need you need to be you need to be an authority within your team and beyond. You need to stretch your team, and you need to speak the language and 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 spare partner with them and so on, as well as give advice outside of your team, uh, have vision, push the vision, and so on. Know what it takes to take that to achieve that vision. All right. So first thing is do a lot of things. Enjoy it first. To to be frank, many mornings I wake up and say, "What am I doing? Why why am I not just you know on a on the notebook trying to solve problems?" <laughs> I can <laughs> relate. <laughs> why am I doing these powerpoints? <laughs> so it's not it's not necessarily the panacea, but yeah. but it's it's enjoyable because it has its own challenge. It comes at a cost. Mm. So it it comes at the cost of you having to convince, you having to build structure for your team, you having to defend your team, you having to motivate them, you having to uh, make sure we succeed within our environment and so on and that comes that's that's not simple so do a lot of data science learn a lot by observing how good experiences work negative experiences didn't work and so on and then try slowly from small scale to greater scale in terms of, of growing into the leadership of it. that's really good and yeah i completely agree with the with the speed and sometimes what people expect to 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 rise to the rank that's really great point and uh, i want to ask you about the the future and essentially the things that we've spoken about is that great data scientists are have all this technical knowledge that they're applying in in areas of deep expertise and and then they're getting a bunch of knowledge and they're having and to be and they need to be innovative right and then to be a leader they need to be able to work across silos in an organization and be able to engage people and build the trust and so what what where do you think this is all leading to essentially having this these groups of people that have developed these skills uh, both technical having subject matter expertise uh, soft skills organizational skills where is this going to to take us in the future as, a, as an industry do you think i think that there are two two dimensions to this mm-hmm. and they probably go against each other yep. so probably things on aggregate will not change too much for someone and i'll explain the first dimension is we will automate ourselves yes right and my view is i, I always think i i'd rather be the automator than the automated right so yes. we, we need you need to be on it so that's why i think products i think we should be really um redundant in three years time so we have automated a lot of what we do so that's one dimension that will you may think hmm, may reduce the the uh, the industry demand. However, the application of machine learning, data science in general, so that when I say data science, I mean the entire value chain from grabbing your data all the way to producing ML, AI, all the way to user experience, the application of it is growing by the day. So when I have conversations with some financial institutions that their industry, as, as they tell me, used to run on cigar and whiskey, and now they're thinking about, okay, can we automate these analysis so that we can actually make more transactions and these are hefty transactions when i think about the legal profession and and how even lawyers think about the future and and they want to jump on the technology element and the uh, and and automate and make things much more efficient and so on these are really the fringe of the french if you like in terms of where we are going in terms of applying data science. So you have you have this demand, this increased demand in, in data science, and then you have, as I said, the automation. 
uh, element, and they'll keep things in balance for the for the for the next while. I am a great believer, I said, in in, in productionalizing things. So mm-hmm. you create products, API can be applied and applied and applied and, and generally. But there are some areas of data science where that is not necessarily possible all the time. So when you think about all optimization problems, or you think of, of making things autonomous and so on, we're not there yet. It's going to take a very long time because you need advances in representation learning in general, including deep learning. You need you need advances in in, in, in reinforcement learning. We, we there are so many things that we don't even understand how they converge and so on. Right? So we, we we have a lot of time to uh, to to achieve, if you like, a lot more automation technically in there on one hand. But the the API world, i.e., data science ready pro- products ready for you to use, that world will expand and will become very big and will become very important from an economic perspective. But at the same time, demand will keep growing because we are going into areas that people didn't think it would go to maybe three years ago or four years ago. Again, when you think about legal or you think about some financial uh, fields, it will be it will be uh, quite different in terms of how they do their business and that's driven by, by data and machine. Exactly. That's going to be... So these things will keep themselves in balance for a while. But I think, I hope that things will become more and more easy and, and we become more efficient. So for me, is my, my if you ask me what keeps me awake at night as, an, mm-hmm. as a as a leader of data science team is is having an efficient data ops, right? I want I want that I want code written and development to run in production. I want people to deliver continuously and I want changes to happen continuously. I want models to register themselves automatically and all the shebang to be very efficient to run. We're not there yet unless you use very specific cloud APIs, etc. Mm. Or some tools are trying to get there, some environment, but we're not there yet, right? So if that improves, then the cadence of what we can deliver will will uh, will uh, expand exponentially and the automation element will expand as well yes quite a lot i i only have one uh one more question for you and i want to ask you about a a takeaway for that you would like to give the the listeners something to to either take away from this conversation or something to think about as they they go through their their careers in data science i think i would advise everybody to if you are if you are a data science leader or a data scientist in an established organization a non-digital native you're on the fringe be happy to be in the be proud of it stand your ground and prove your worth because honestly as an industry we have nothing to prove in the sense that just look at the stock market and valuation of companies or look at your phone and, and various products you use and so on right what 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 i say to, to people in an established organization is you know the challenge is for you to learn how to get value out of this rather than for this to prove itself to you Yes. So it's 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 a very different mentality. The challenge is on you, not on me. Mm-hmm. Right? You need to learn how to get value out of me. Right? For me, is I just want the challenge. Just give me the challenge, and I'll prove to you. Right? I can I can deliver. But for you, is you need to learn to get the, to get value out of this. So be happy to be on the fringe. Be happy to say you need to learn to get business value out of our our expertise. Um, be ambitious in the sense that try to change things radically. Why would you try to add an epsilon? Right? <laughs> just Go, just go for the for the 10x and don't stop learning. Don't stop innovating. Don't stop trying things and don't stop learning. Be humble because there's always a better idea out there. And I would challenge most people if they ever found, if they ever they had the technical problem and they didn't find somebody who at least posted the same question on Stack Overflow before them, right? They may have an answer or not, but at least ask the questions, posted the question, right? It happened to me very rarely that I don't find it. Yes. Right? Very, and if I don't find it there, I will find a, an arcs of paper. <laughs> 
All right. Um, so be humble, always learn, and be proud of being on the fringe. Because one day we will be the center. So true. So true. That That is fantastic. That is a great note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing all your insights, philosophies, all your views that are so valuable. Uh, thank you so much for doing the, the interview and, and um, giving us uh, some time with you. Thanks for having me. Amazing. Thank you. Before we end today, I would like to tell you about the Chief Data and Analytics Officer Conference that's coming up in Melbourne on September 3rd to the 5th. In this conference, uh, a, a large percentage of the chief data officers and chief analytical officers in Australia are going to get together to discuss the most pressing challenges in the industry. I will be there and if you are around, please come and say hi. For more information, go to chiefdataanalyticsofficermelbourne.com. That's all one word, chiefdataanalyticsofficermelbourne.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.